The next few episodes of Historia Obscura will cover the Rwandan genocide, one of the worst atrocities in human history, and discuss mass murder, sexual assault, and torture. This is probably the most gut-wrenching topic I have ever or will ever cover. In the process of writing this miniseries, it took me several hours just to come up with a title that would do justice to capture the horror of this event. Point is, this may be a difficult miniseries to listen to, so listener discretion is advised. May such an event never happen again. episode, I talked about a country in sub-Saharan Africa that is pushing back against the common narrative of a dejected, despondent, and desolate African continent, Botswana. There is virtually no debate that Botswana has the best quality of life out of any country in the region. However, another country is slowly but surely working its way towards prosperity. This country is Rwanda. On the surface, Rwanda does not exactly appear to be an economic powerhouse. Rwanda has a nominal GDP of just over $12 billion, with a population of almost 13 million, meaning that Rwanda's GDP per capita amounts to a mere $910, although this is somewhat offset by the nation's low cost of living. Still, over 90% of Rwandans live off of less than $5.50 a day. In spite of this, There are some aspects of Rwanda's economy and quality of life that show things are on the up and up. Rwanda has a life expectancy of approximately 69 years, tied with Botswana's for the highest in sub-Saharan Africa. In 2019, Rwanda was ranked the 29th best country for ease of doing business by the World Bank Group, easily the highest in Africa and even surpassing highly developed nations like France, the Netherlands, and Japan. However, this progress has, in many ways, come at the expense of democracy and civil liberties. Rwandan President Paul Kagame has been in power continuously since 2000, and in 2015, he suspended the constitutional amendment that established term limits on the office of president so that he could continue serving. Kagame has won three presidential elections in total, all of which have been cited by human rights organizations as unfree and undemocratic. Kagame has even been linked to assassinations of Rwandan dissidents in exile, such as that of head of intelligence Patrick Karagaya in Johannesburg, South Africa. And yet, there are a significant number of Rwandans who believe Paul Kagame should rule over Rwanda. Even with the unprecedented economic growth that Rwanda has experienced under Kagame's leadership, it may be difficult to understand why so many Rwandans want a leader as despotic as Kagame. However, it becomes much easier to understand once you realize Kagame's role in ending one of the most horrific genocides the world has ever seen. collectively known as Banya Rwanda. Almost 99% of Banya Rwanda are part of one of two ethnic groups, Hutu and Tutsi. Hutu make up approximately 85% of Banya Rwanda, while Tutsi are around 14%. The remaining 1% are the Twa people, a pygmy ethnic group. Today, these groups live, for the most part, in peace and harmony. 
Laws banning ethnic discrimination are strictly enforced by the Rwandan government, and the vast majority of Banya Rwanda see themselves, first and foremost, as Rwandan, rather than Hutu or Tutsi. But despite their majority in numbers, the Hutu were historically subjugated either by the Tutsi or by outside forces. In 1884, Rwanda was colonized and incorporated into German East Africa, and during World War II, Belgium seized Rwanda from Germany in 1916. In an effort to divide and conquer more easily, both the Germans and Belgians enforced policies of Tutsi ethnic superiority over the Hutu, who were designated as an inferior group. This inflamed tensions between the Hutu and Tutsi, and in 1959, the Hutu revolted against Belgium, killing many Tutsi in the process. Within two years, roughly 20,000 Tutsi were killed, while over 300,000 fled to neighboring countries like Uganda and Tanzania. In 1962, the Hutu-led revolutionaries declared Rwanda an independent nation with a Hutu government. In 1973, moderate Hutu politician Juvenal Habyarimana, the term moderate being used purely in a racial sense, politically he was extremely far right, came to power as president after a coup d'etat. Although he upheld Hutu hegemony, Habyarimana relaxed employment and education quotas that had severely disadvantaged Tutsi. Habyarimana's wife Agatha, though, was a notorious member of the Hutu power movement, which promoted anti-Tutsi sentiment, and she gradually influenced her husband to implement anti-Tutsi policies. Soon, these policies would doom Rwanda to a bloody civil war, followed by one of the most grim, yet nightmarishly efficient genocides in history. I'm going to tell you all about it, right now, on Historia Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the 70th episode of this podcast, as well as the first episode of the miniseries about the Rwandan genocide. Special thank you to Patreon subscribers Barbara, Lisa Chase, and Tom. If you want to receive a shout-out in every episode, among other benefits, help support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and becoming a patron. One more thing. Make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Anchor. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Anchor. On October 1st, 1990, northern Rwanda was invaded from the border with Uganda. But despite hostilities between the two nations, it was not, in fact, Uganda that was invading. The invasion was actually executed by the Rwandan Patriotic Front, a rebel group primarily composed of Tutsi living in exile, but also some moderate Hutu who strive for unity with their fellow Banya Rwanda. The RPF was led by Major General Fred Rigiema, a Tutsi refugee who had previously helped to topple Idi Amin's regime in Uganda. On the second day of the invasion of Rwanda, Rigema was killed by a gunshot to the head. At the time, his second-in-command, Paul Kagame, was attending the Command and General Staff College in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, alongside U.S. Army General David Petraeus, who also attended Princeton University in New Jersey. Nonetheless, Kagame took over the operation upon his return to Rwanda. 
Meanwhile, Habia Rimana's Rwandan armed forces were assisted by Zaire and France, although Zairean troops were expelled from Rwanda by Habia Rimana after reports emerged of these troops raping Rwandan women and looting homes. For three years, Kagame's RPF forces waged a brutal guerrilla war against Habia Rimana's RAF, specializing in hit-and-run attacks on RAF soldiers. With the RPF encircling the capital Kigali, Habyarimana reluctantly went to the negotiating table with Kagame. On August 4, 1993, the RPF and Rwandan government signed the Arusha Accords, seemingly ending the civil war and allowing for the integration of Tutsi into the Rwandan government and military. But rather than easing hostilities, the Arusha Accords only served to inflame the Hutu power movement, who were convinced that moderate Hutu like Habyarimana would only capitulate to the Tutsi. With tensions between Hutu and Tutsi at a height never seen before, a group of Hutu power extremists known as the Akazu resolved to enact a so-called final solution, modeled after the Holocaust, on the Tutsi of Rwanda. All they needed was a catalyst to ignite the situation. On April 6, 1994, a Dassault Falcon 50 jet carrying Rwandan President Juvenal Habyarimana and Burundian President Sipiren Niteamira was shot down over Kigali by a surface-to-air missile, killing everyone on board. It is still unknown who committed this assassination, but evidence suggests it was either Paul Kagame and the RPF, or Hutu extremists who didn't want Habyarimana to comply with the Arusha Accords. What is important is that the RPF, and by extension the Tutsi, were blamed for killing Habyarimana. The next day, on April 7, 1994, Agatha Uwilingi the moderate Hutu Prime Minister of Rwanda was murdered at her home alongside 10 Belgian UN peacekeepers by Hutu extremists. In the aftermath of these two assassinations, RAF Colonel Theonest Bagasora took power as the interim leader of Rwanda. In the coming days, key Akazu figures, known as genocidaires, began executing a genocide with Bagasora's oversight. Robert Kajuga, who was, interestingly, half Tutsi, formed a Hutu power militia called the Interahamwa. A similar militia, called the Impuza Mugambi, was established by lawyer Jean Bosco Baragawiza and journalist Hassan Ngeze. Additionally, a wealthy Hutu businessman named Felicien Kabuga financed the importation of half a million machetes to these militias and smaller Hutu gangs. Perhaps the most powerful weapon, however, was the free radio and television of the Thousand Hills, or RTLM. Over the airwaves of RTLM, radio hosts known as animateurs called for the mass murder of Tutsi, moderate Hutu, and, if need be, members of the UN peacekeeping force in Rwanda. The first RTLM broadcast following Habyarimana's assassination concluded with the following statement. And you people who live near Rugunga, go out. You will see the cockroaches' straw huts in the marsh. I think that those who have guns should immediately go to these cockroaches, encircle them, and kill them. RTLM's anti-Tutsi propaganda was so effective that Hutu across Rwanda began to slaughter their Tutsi neighbors, friends, and even sometimes family 
with machetes and guns. The UN peacekeeping force established small safe zones where Tutsi could take refuge, but stunted by very restrictive rules of engagement, there was practically nothing UN peacekeepers could do to stop the genocide. Instead, they urged Kagame and the RPF to make peace with Bagasura's government. A Tutsi himself, an outraged Kagame, understandably refused this offer unless the genocide was halted. But tragically, there was no such end to the genocide of Tutsi in sight. Most killings during the genocide were done with machetes, thanks to Kabuga's financing of arms. In order to find Tutsi to murder, RTLM broadcast the names and addresses of known Tutsi and moderate Hutu, while the Interahamwa set up checkpoints to check identification cards that declared every citizen's ethnic background and summarily executed any Tutsi. Hutu were often coerced into participating in the massacre in order to prove that they were not Tutsi sympathizers. Sometimes targets of the genocide would have their limbs hacked off by the genociders who would leave the scene for hours or days in order to prolong the victim's suffering, only to return later and strike the death blow. Dead bodies were dumped into the Kagera River and flowed into Lake Victoria, causing an economic crisis in Uganda because Ugandan consumers didn't want to buy fish that could be contaminated by decomposed corpses. Tutsi parents were often forced to watch their children get hacked to death with machetes or be raped by militiamen. Sexual violence in particular was often used as a systematic tool against the Tutsi population in an attempt to either intimidate the Tutsi or leave them physically incapable of procreation. In quite possibly the most grim phenomenon of the genocide, hundreds of AIDS patients were discharged from hospitals and recruited by the Interahamwa as rape gangs to infect Tutsi women with HIV. Many historians have concluded that nearly every female survivor of the genocide over the age of 12, which correlates to roughly half a million women and girls, was a victim of sexual violence, and an estimated two-thirds of these women tested positive for HIV following the genocide. Additionally, approximately 10,000 babies, often referred to as children of bad memories, were born as a result of rapes committed during the genocide. There were also some specific organized massacres over the course of the genocide. Genocideurs would often lure Tutsi into schools and churches under false pretenses of safety before killing them en masse. One such incident, the Nyarabuye massacre, saw the murder of approximately 20,000 Tutsi at a Catholic church with machetes, automatic rifles, and hand grenades. During the genocide, the Catholic Church actually took a lot of heat for the alleged apathy and even participation of Catholic clergy in the genocide, since Hutu are predominantly Catholic and Tutsi are overwhelmingly Protestant. Regardless of any foreign entity's involvement or lack thereof, the genocide exposed just how depraved and cruel people could be to each other. course of the Rwandan genocide, Paul Kagame's RPF forces had continued to wage war on the Hutu supremacist government and militias. On July 4th, 
1994, which in Rwanda is a public holiday called Liberation Day, the RPF captured the capital Kigali, sending Bagasora's government into exile. However, the genocide had still not ended yet. Militias like the Interahamwa and Impuza Mugambi continued to massacre Tutsi in remote villages elsewhere in Rwanda. It was not until July 18, 1994, 99 days after the genocide had began, that the remaining militias were defeated. Kagame took power as an interim leader, and he has led Rwanda in some capacity ever since. Almost immediately, approximately 2 million Hutu civilians fled to Zaire, fearing reprisals from the RPF. Almost all of the genocidaires were able to flee alongside these civilians, which prevented many of them from facing justice for the atrocities they had committed. To this day, some Hutu nationalists are proponents of the double genocide theory, which postulates that the Hutu were victims of a counter-genocide by the RPF. Although there were numerous killings of Hutu by the RPF, historians generally classify these as war crimes rather than a genocide, and today, genocide revisionist ideologies like the double genocide theory are strictly illegal in Rwanda. Even asking someone what their ethnicity is in Rwanda can get you arrested. To put it lightly, Rwanda was decimated by the genocide. Within 99 days, an estimated 800,000 Tutsi and up to 1 million people in total were slaughtered. Approximately 40% of the population of Rwanda was either killed or fled the country. Meanwhile, 70% of Tutsi were murdered with this figure being as high as 99% in some cities. In 1994, the average life expectancy in Rwanda stood at just over 26 years. As I explained earlier, this has since rebounded to an astonishing rate, which may serve to explain just why Paul Kagame is so beloved in spite of his authoritarianism. Still, the Interahamwa continues to operate out of the jungles of Uganda and Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and occasionally launches attacks on Rwandan targets. But with the support of many of his citizens and plenty of Western governments, Paul Kagame's rule over Rwanda, for better or for worse, shows no signs of ending anytime soon. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. As I mentioned earlier, this may be the darkest subject I have ever discussed, but it is still very important to know about even the most grim parts of humanity's history. The next couple of episodes will also be part of the Rwandan Genocide miniseries, and I highly recommend you listen to them as they discuss those who tried to help the targets of the genocide, as well as what happened to the genocidaires who committed the genocide. If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash historiaobscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. Additionally, if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and become a patron. And of course... I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Anchor. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, 
go to anchor.fm. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long.